I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and today's guest is Charlena Berry. Charlena is the Chief Operating Officer of the Cake House Dispensary Group. Prior to that, she founded Cannabis Business Growth after spending more than a decade in supply chain and retail operations for Fortune 500 companies like Whirlpool and Office Depot OfficeMax. A global cannabis business executive and the company's principal consultant, Charlena forms strategic partnerships, guides entrepreneurs, and leads projects in all sectors of the cannabis industry, from cultivation and manufacturing to commercial retail and distribution. A witness herself to the impact of addiction and the illicit market, Charlena is a proud advocate for cannabis and its potential healing, potential for healing, and personal growth. Charlena, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm very grateful to have you here. Matthew, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. Awesome. So I I don't have the video going for our listeners, but I can see the stack of books behind you. And I'm going to just jump right in and start there. Maybe we'll get into your history a little bit later. But this book, Breaking the Stigma, I love the subtitle of it. Racism, the opioid endemic, lies, and inviting grandma to the dispensary. Where did this come from? How did you get the idea for the book and um, all of these different topics, racism, opioids, all of this? It's it's so important. So I just would love to hear the story behind it. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, Once a year for my consulting company, I try to like reflect and say, hey, I'm going to do something cool. What can it be? And since I was a little kid, I had this fantasy of writing a book. And when I was a little girl, it was a book and it had dinosaurs and dragons in it. <clears throat> and last year, uh, the beginning of the year, I was like, you know, I had gone through this big evolution as a person on thinking cannabis was a Trojan horse, right? When I first started working in in, in weed, basically, it was like, ah, it's fun. I help people sell weed. And uh, I went through this evolution as a person from seeing the medical value that it has to offer and believing that um, it's something uh, that cannabis, access to cannabis is a human right. Um, when I decided to write the book, it was what I would describe as fun. <clears throat> And then um, my family had a horde, horde tragedy. Um, my, uh, my baby brother was living with me and he was 90 days clean and sober from an opiate addiction. And um, he went to an AA meeting and he was given a fake volume. And he, uh, he laid down and went to sleep and didn't wake up. After he died, I was so angry that weed was not in our life for him. Um, And writing the book uh, became this way for me to dump out all of those emotions. And I recall, you know, and you say, hey, how is it relevant if your brother died of a fentanyl overdose, right? how does that relate to this book, you know, breaking the stigma? And what I remember after he, he died is he had told me that the way that he became addicted to opiates is when he was 14 years old. And I talk about this in the book, my stepdad had given him a half Oxycontin when he was 14 years old. Okay. That's terrible. 
how did he get the Oxycontins? My stepdad was a cancer patient. And at the time in the early 2000s, they would send cancer patients home with pill bottles that had 120 pills in it. Um, This happened for two or three years. My stepdad beat cancer and subsequently died from an overdose. My 14-year-old brother acquired his addiction at 14. He did it through a trusted source. So after this whole journey, you know, 20 years, I, I had this baby brother that I fought with him and his addiction and I was mad and I was angry and it was, how could you be this addict? And, and then when he was clean and sober, he, he had a chance and we talked about his first pill and these things. And so then after he died, it was this, like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'm like, how can the Sackler family get away with funneling all of these pills into the system and creating all these drug addicts? And then, and then meanwhile, we've got, you know, in 1937, we've got Harry Anslinger who created black people and Latin people as villains to make marijuana illegal, right? And I was just mortified. And all I, I remember saying in my rage after his death is these are lies. And I, I, I remember, and I would walk around my pool and I'm like, it was racism killed my brother. And, and that sounds crazy, but like the way that I tie it together is that had my stepdad been given a joint when he got cancer, instead of a bottle of Oxycontins that he, that was told he was safe, my entire family's life would be different. And in states where there's no accessibility today, I, you know, my example is the Carolinas. I have an auntie in the Carolina who two years ago, her husband had shoulder surgery and they still give opiates out. And what I would argue is the doctor intentionally tried to get opiates, my, my uncle addicted to an opiate, and then refused to wean him off. Well, I went through this journey with them to teach her how to make a topical and you know, in having my conversation with her on how to make this topical, I had to explain to her, well, listen, auntie, I'm sorry, but you don't have legal weed. So, uh, you are, uh, you're going to have to find somebody on the street to buy your weed from. And that just seems like so crazy to me that here we are in 2022, that I have to tell my auntie in North Carolina to go buy black market weed. You know, and she does now and she makes brownies and she lives in a 55 older and plus community. She serves the neighborhood brownies. And it, I, I think it's hilarious, but, and, and that's my auntie, but the, you know, I, I had up last night, an elderly woman approached me at one of my daughter's events about how she can get access to marijuana. And what I really feel like is that, you know, the last customer group to break through is that grandma right? in grandfathers and how do we tap into that market and create a customer experience that people of that, um, of that age group feel comfortable shopping because I feel like there's still people at their first time at a dispensary are still scared, right? And so the whole message of the book is A, let's understand how we got here. Like, let's understand social equity. Let's understand racism. Let's understand how opiates flooded the market because somebody did that. Like it wasn't, somebody did that. It wasn't an accident that happened, right? 
and and then really take a look and say, okay, how do I create a customer experience that doesn't support those things and is inclusive as possible to get to as many customers as possible? And that's really the whole reason I I, I wrote the book is you know it it, it emotional but business based book on how to bring more marijuana to the world. I want everybody to smoke weed. Right. So. so thank you for that. And and thank you for sharing that emotional experience as well. Um, and just to carry on from what you're saying. So the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act that basically eliminated the possibility for cannabis to be used anywhere. So um, and piggybacking on the racism with with black folks and the Latino population, Harry Anslinger invented the word marijuana. It didn't even exist beforehand. So the word itself is racist. So I've done everything I can to try to eliminate it from my entire vernacular and just use the word cannabis because for a hundred years before that, you could go into an apothecary and get cannabis products and it was mm-hmm. always called cannabis. And they really invented the word marijuana to make it sound foreign and evil. So how like... Whatever I can do to stop saying it, I'm going to encourage everybody I know to stop saying it. And then also what drives me crazy is working on a state-by-state basis, there's only two states in the whole nation that actually call cannabis cannabis. It's still, it's a medical marijuana program in all these other states. So Mm -hmm. we have a lot of work to do, Charlena. We really do. It's so funny that you say that you've worked to eliminate the word marijuana from your vocabulary because I have too. For the most part, I'll say weed, I'll say joint, I'll say cannabis. Cannabis is my most used word, but I can't even say marijuana knowing the racist history on it. Like he did it, it, he did it intentionally to associate it with Latin people. Like, oh yeah. So I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating and gross. And um, so the, this grandma population, right. This is so Mm -hmm. interesting to me. My parents became grandparents in the last few years and most of their friends are grandparents and they are unashamed about using cannabis and Mm -hmm. have been medical patients here in Ohio since the program began basically. And, and it's, demographically it's kind of the most, the biggest and quickest growing demographic of people you know, i think that maybe they tried tried smoking weed in the 70s in college and they was like oh i can't really do that and did the yuppie thing through the 80s and they're like okay well i guess i'm retired well let's get back to that cannabis see what that does for me now so, <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what has been your experience in trying to break into that demographic and educate them? I mean, you shared about your, your auntie and all that. Um, just on a more consumer level, what have you seen? Well, you know, I think there's definitely stores out there that are designed in a way to target the 20 and 30 years old, right? And then there's stores that are designed to be more inclusive. And, you know, in in places where medical is available, right? People are breaking those barriers. Here in Florida, medical is available, but it's so hard to get a medical card that the, that it's we don't have the population quite there to where it's you know the house full of grandparents that are like, hey, I'm gonna you know let's get high because here it's still so hard. You know, if you run out of your smokable flour in a month, you have to go back in for a re-up, right? The doctor has to say you get more. And I'm really against 
those rules that control usage like that. Um, because to me, it's unnecessarily it putting money in places, a doctor's pocket where we don't need to. Um, and so, uh, I think, and what's interesting is you go around the country, every state's really different, you know, and you still have, I think of New York and I want to say like, more than 50% of the cities in New York opted out of allowing a dispensary in their city. And so that to me is, you know, there you have 50% that's on board and you've still got that whole 50% that, you know, believe the Harry Anslinger lies, it's the devil's lettuce. Um, and so the book is really a case for how do you change the other 50% to be on our side? Um, how do you, you know, treat it like more traditional retail and put more traditional retail practices in place so that we're still, we're not as offensive, right? Because, you know, the bottom line is that people still consider us in the industry offensive. You know, there's people that just dislike us for the state spirit of disliking us. And I make an argument that if you work in the industry, you're the, you have a responsibility to help break down the barriers associated with the stigma. I couldn't agree more. I always say that you have to be an advocate. If you're going to choose to work in the cannabis industry, you have to be an advocate. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Even in a state like California, I think something like 70% of the counties voted against being able to have dispensaries. And yep. that, I mean, and they've had a program since 1996. Yep. And, and it's by far the biggest in the country. And still most of the state won't allow it to happen. So, I mean, we started in the 30s where this stigma really began. How have you seen it perpetuated throughout the decades up till now? And then what kind of actions can we take um, as members of the industry, as curious participants in the industry? What kind of things can we do from an advocacy perspective? Um, I think that's a great question. You know, I think from the history, we saw the Nixon era, right, come in where he used doing, there's that famous uh, um, Jeffrey Ehrlicher quote where he, you know, basically said that, you know, we couldn't be against Vietnam. Um, we couldn't be against something else, but we could, you know, uh, use drugs to put black and brown people on the TV every night showing that, you know, marijuana and, and heroin as well were, were demonizing the cities, you know, and in the last part of the quote is, did we know that it was a lie? Yeah, we did. Right. We knew it was a lie, but, you know, and so it's just continued to be used for, a, you know, a mainstream persecution agenda. Even now, I think last week I saw somebody I can't even remember what state it was. They, they, it's big headline nudes, 500 pounds of marijuana seized. Come on. Like, come on. Somebody's got to run the black market. You know, <laughs> if you're not going to let it in the state, somebody's got to run the black market. It's always going to be there. But um, in terms of, you know, what can we do? I, I was never what I would describe political before working in the industry. And this is where I say, you know, we have to remain active and vigilant to continue to contact and write and call our senators and vote in people that are friendly. Um, I think it's a, a huge bummer that it remains so political still, right? Federal, because that was one of the big lies I remember is after my brother died in my anger, 
with it being schedule one status. I like it, it, like that's a lie. The FDA tells to the entire world, right? Like it's a lie. They put marijuana next to heroin and on the schedule one status. And that's a lie. How can you be a trustworthy source of information if you're telling me a lie every day? Um, yeah, and- there are three different cannabinoid pharmaceuticals promoted by the FDA that exist. Like, how can you possibly have legitimate pharmaceutical medicine from cannabis and say that it has no medical value? It's mind-boggling the hypocrisy. Yeah. And I don't understand how they can't like look like I I can't lie. How do you like publish lies? Like, oh, it's policy. Um, you know, so and, and the, the lie that causes huge problems in our business, right? No access to banking, right? You you can if you jump through hoops. Therefore, you're a cash business. Now you're suspect to more robberies. Now you're suspect to all of these things that just fundamentally hurt. And the freight train of cannabis legislation is not going away. And so, you know, to each person in the industry, like you said it, you have to be an advocate, but you also need to make sure that your voice is heard and how the policy is shaped. Because, you know, the, the individuals that are shaping these policies, you can read it sometimes and it's like, oh, please get, please get a consultant because those rules just don't make sense. You know, and so make yourself available. But then good business practices, I think, go a long way because we have a reputation in the industry for not being, not having good business practices. And, you know, I think some of that's the migration from, you know, the gray market to a traditional market, but go out of your way to learn the skills to implement good business practices so that we can get rid of this negative connotation that we have as business operators in the industry. Definitely. So that's, I'm going to dig deep into that business side of things with you in just a moment. I still want to, Oh, I want to get back to uh, the opioid endemic. And I was listening to an interview with professor David Nutt, who's an English researcher and has been working with plant medicines and psychedelics for the last, I don't know, 40 years at the Imperial College of London. And Mm -hmm. it hasn't been published yet, but they just wrapped up a big study around pain. And they went through a whole bunch of different substances, including opioids and uh, cannabis, specifically a one-to-one ratio of THC and CBD. And when you include all the different pain factors and the relief of those pain, and then also side effects and um, different societal damage that come along with each one of these types of quote-unquote medicines, what he found was that it wasn't even close. Like Nothing came close to comparing to the efficacy of the cannabis, the one-to-one ratio with cannabis on pain. And so we have been fed this line of crap that, oh, you can't actually do anything about pain with cannabis. That's why we still need opioids. That's why they're still being prescribed. And it's it's just another lie that's being proliferated. Uh, have you have you seen anything? Have you do you have any firsthand experience of how maybe we can start shuffling cannabis in where opioids used to exist? I I feel like there has to be a campaign in the medical system to change the attitude. Um, I know in my firsthand experience in a state like Michigan, who's had medical marijuana since 2008, that mainstream doctors that have gone towards cannabis versus um, opioids have been removed from mainstream 
doctors work, right? And I believe that there's has to be some sort of higher level um, rally around our medical field and medical professionals to not shun doctors who speak truth to the cannabis plant. Because I think, you know, there's, there's doctors out there who do now, but I think that in, I get the feeling that they're still kind of considered quacks if they're making money in cannabis when that's not true. They're, they're doing a public service that's absolutely necessary. And I think as long as pharmaceuticals um, are not making money on cannabis, there's not going to be a shift in the healthcare. And I think that that's sad and terrible um, because I agree. I haven't even seen the study. I can't wait to see the study, but I just in my own firsthand experience, there's, you know, there's nothing. There's very little that comes good out of creating new opiate addicts. There's very little. And why would you create new opiate addicts when there is an alternative? Like, and why would you do that? Why, you know, and there are reasons for fentanyl after surgery, right? I agree. There's a reason for that, right? There's not a reason to send somebody home with a 15 day supply of opiates. That's enough to destroy somebody's life, you know, especially when there's an alternative. Um, And I don't, I I wish I could say there was like a magic way to change that, but I, I, I don't have as much hope in our medical system switching without a huge effort to lobby behind that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's really going to be the, the big switch is when we can have a rescheduled cannabis location, but probably three, because that's where the other cannabinoid medicines that are sponsored by the FDA, that's where they are. So <laughs> yeah. schedule three seems to make sense for that one. But as, as sad as it is, where the money is, that's where the votes mm-hmm. go. And, and until we can have a little bit more education, we can have a little bit more money going towards cannabis as medicine, we're unfortunately probably going to keep seeing the proliferation of opioids moving throughout culture. It's so mm-hmm. it 47,000 overdoses in 2021 alone. And 105. 105? Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Well, but now what's interesting that I've also discovered since this tragedy with my family. So they have gone out of their way to control opiates more. Right. So you don't have, you know, there was the situation in West Virginia where like 800 times the number of pills that were necessary flooded in. Right. That happened in the years 2000s and 2010s. They've gotten it under control. However, now that there's not pharmaceutical grade opiates in the black market, the lovely black market is chiming in to um, fill that gap because the gap's always filled. And so there's this proliferation of fake pills that are out there. And the uh, in September of last year, the FDA finally launched what they called a one pill can kill campaign. There's not a lot of public knowledge about it, which is disheartening and sad because um, 
in the people I've talked to is when somebody enters rehabilitation, you know, they come in and they confess to something that they're addicted to crystal meth, crack, cocaine, opiates, pills, Valium, Xanax, right? You've got your plethora of things you could be addicted to. All of them are testing positive for fentanyl. All of them. And the weekend that my brother died, the um, state of Connecticut had actually issued, they're one of the few states that's really good because they actually issue um, warnings. And the weekend that my brother died, they had issued a fentanyl warning, an alert system to say that they've seen an uptick in overdoses. And so if you listen to the mainstream news, all of these overdoses are attributed to um, despair deaths. Um, I promise you my baby brother's death was not a despair death. He did not kill himself. He thought he got a value. And I know him. He didn't even go after what he was addicted to. He didn't go after an opiate when he bought the pill, right? You could shut him. He went after a volume. And the, the overdose and fentanyl deaths continue to increase. Um, it is common for kids to get pills now off of Snapchat. And I want to say ABC or CBS like a month or two ago, did a special on middle schoolers buying pills off of Snapchat and dying. Um, their Connecticut being good in their reporting a few months ago also announced that they found weed laced with fentanyl. They were having overdose deaths with people smoking weed. And in all, when I see a police report on somebody with marijuana busted, I literally am angry and furious because it's why aren't you busting the fucking fentanyl dealers? And, and I apologize to curse, but that's how I feel. Like, why are you spending any of my taxpayer money on marijuana? Sorry, my bad word. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you spending any taxpayer money on that when uh, uh, more than a hundred thousand people died last year? From over fentanyl, you know, and we're on we're on track this year to outpace the number of deaths from last year because it continues to get funneled in, and the one pill can kill campaign didn't go up until September, and it's still not public knowledge. You know, there's not a there's not a warning on the radio. You know, in the state of Florida, they stopped reporting opiate deaths in like 2019. I've sent so much information to the government here. To the news sources, they won't. They won't even pick it up. It's so horrid. It's so sad. And um, I, you know, I come. I was a kid in the two thousands, right? I I might have dabbled in some black market stuff. Who didn't, right? And I I touch nothing now. And my friend was over yesterday because she's like, how do I get my mom medical marijuana? And I was like, you have to go get her a card because you can't, you know, and I'm like, I'm so anti-street drugs right now um, because they're terrifying. They're literally terrifying. You don't know what you're getting. No, you have no idea. And I, I spent my early adult life in California and working in the cannabis industry as a cultivator there. And so my friend group, they were all cultivators themselves. And 
I got to the point where I, if I didn't know who grew it, I, I wasn't going to smoke it. There was just, there was no way. And through different circles, I got to know different chemists and so some more other um, psychedelic mind altering things. <laughs> I always had access to something where I knew exactly where it came from. And there is no way that I could consciously purchase something without a certificate of analysis or direct knowledge of the person in a lab creating whatever mm -hmm. substance it might be. Because almost, like you said, almost everything has fentanyl in it. Yep. And it's, it's so sad and so tragic. And yeah, I mean, education seems like the best path, but our lawmakers are hesitant to even bring these things up to children when hmm. we need to be in elementary schools, not scaring them about what drugs are, but letting them know what different drugs do and how the benefits of them and the negative aspects of, of what happened because of this fentanyl influx that's happening in the country. Like the, the education has to start young. It's so crazy. Mm -hmm. I even, um, I have friends that have like 16, 17 year olds right now. And I even started recommending that their 16 and 17 year olds carry Narcan with them. Like you can get it at the get, you get it and get it at the store. Like, why isn't that like a thing? Like, okay, fine. Like kids are going to dabble in recreational drugs. Like that's a fact, right? Um, I, instead of this scare complex, like, okay, arm them with the tools, right? Hey, if you're not going to go after the fentanyl dealers, fine, right? At least arm them with the education and the tools so that there's not this unnecessary, untimely death. It's the leading cause of death right now for, I think, anyone under 50. Something like that. It's the leading cause of death. Wow. Yeah. And personally, I believe it should be civic duty to have Narcan on you at all times. I, I went to a music mm -hmm. festival last weekend and so many people I knew, they're like, oh yeah, I've got Narcan in my bag right here. And it's like, good. Good. Dude, this, that's so freaking awesome to hear that. I love that. It's 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 become critical. It's unbelievably tragic that that's the case, but it's become a critical thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're moving in that direction. Yep. Um, all right, I'm going to change gears now. Thank you for going there with me. It's a hard subject, but it's important that we, we get it out to the people for sure. So to the business side of things. Yeah. Um, all right. Years in Fortune 500 and, and corporate America, and you make this switch into the cannabis industry. How did that even happen? Um, you know, it's funny because I, I come from a family of small business owners. And, um, you know, I always saw my grandma. My grandma owned a bar. My dad owned a hardwood flooring company. Um, I would say when I got out of college, I didn't have the courage or the ideas to just go open a business. So I just went to work. And I did well in the, the Fortune 500 space. Um, there's a real glass ceiling, right? Like there's a, you, you are a woman. There's a place where unless you can get in with the boys, your growth stops. Um, and I got to a place in my career where it was really obvious that there was not going to be anything else for me for a long time um, because I was young too. Um, and so I just kind of said, I don't want to work for the man anymore. And I literally, I quit, which was crazy. And my first day off after quitting, I was driving Uber. So I went from a six, a six figure gig to an Uber driver and I didn't care. I was like, you know, 
like that's life. Like, you know, all humble humbleness. And I started a consulting company. I said, I'm smart. I'll consult. Right. I had no clue what I was doing. I posted my, uh, consulting company opening on Facebook. And the only thing Facebook's ever done for me is my friend congratulated me and it popped up in an attorney's feed. And this attorney messaged my friend said, is she any good? He said, yeah, she's great. And gave him my phone number. Um, That was like a Thursday. I think Friday I was in this attorney's office and I, he's like, can you write this business plan for a potential vertically integrated marijuana company? And I'm like, I know how to write, you know, I'm a reader, you know, I'm smart. Yeah. I left with a check in my hand. And I'm like, (laughs) I called my friend up afterwards. I was like, dude, he didn't even make me sign a contract. He just sent me away with a check. Like, is that normal? And he's like, just ask. And I was like, you know, so we spent the, that year, Florida was hot. We spent that, that year working on Florida, Florida never ended up doing anything, but it was enough to teach me, um, about the licensing work that's required. Um, and so, um, I got good at it and then just started, you know, true blue hustler, making phone calls and getting to know people in the industry, got connected in California with, I literally don't even know how that happened. Like uh, where I ended up, I, I, I can't remember the series of relationships that even led me to be in California. Cause I feel like I've just known those people all of the t- time. And um, I focused on lighting or uh, licensing, which is such a big deal. Um, merit-based licensing in California is crazy competitive. And so I, I have my secret sauce on that. And um, I've won a lot of licenses. I've actually, I yesterday submitted my 161st license. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That was, new, that was New Jersey. So that, uh, that is how my consulting company came to be. Um, and then I just followed licenses around the country. I worked in Missouri. I worked in Illinois, uh, Ohio. I didn't win anything there though. Uh, Massachusetts, Jersey. I went to Africa once and presented to the minister of health in Zimbabwe, wow. <laughs> which was crazy. Um, and I've, I love it. I, I, I've loved bringing businesses to life in my, uh, and with my consulting company. That's great. And the licensing part is, it's no joke. It's really challenging to do. I, I have a buddy who he has a group of folks that he'd been working with in the cannabis industry for a long time in California. And they were started to open a couple different dispensaries around the Bay area. And they realized that they got really good at acquiring the licenses and that they could make way more money by getting the license and then selling the license yep. than they could by ever opening in their own dispensary. So it's, it's a market within a really interesting market in itself. Yeah. That's it. it it's interesting that they there's a, a several groups that have taken the strategy of, you know, I'm going to win the license and flip it. Yeah. Um, and it's lucrative. You know, once you get that paper in hand, that local approval, that's huge, you know, and it's so hard to get because there's still, even though legal weed's been in cannabis since 1996, there's still all those people that hate it, yep. you know, so they make it hard to get. 
Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, and I just saw in the news last week, I'm, I'm in Ohio now. I grew up in Cleveland, moved back here to be with my startup here. But uh, just 70 new licenses for dispensaries in Ohio. And we're not a very big state, so that's going to make a huge difference as far as having access for people that need it. it right now, it's it's not that easy to find dispensaries. They're dotted all over the place. Well, not, not all over the place, but they're in strange locations. Places yeah. you would never think to even possibly find one. So I'm excited that it's starting to grow. The possibility for access is going to continue to grow. Do you shop at dispensaries there or you still uh, get it from your local grower? Well, no. Now, the, now that you can get a certificate of analysis for any product you ever want and you can see exactly what's in it and, and how it's been grown, I'm perfectly comfortable being able to go to the medical dispensaries here. Perfectly. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's crit- it's a critical part of the education process too. Like whether or not you actually have a physical printout of the COA or if there's a QR code where you can just bring it up on your phone while you're in the dispensary. I don't care. As long as there's access to it and you can see what's going on in there and that it is third-party lab tested, awesome. Let's let's keep that part of the industry growing. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's cool that you feel that it's that accessible too. Like that you have the confidence in it. And to, I think that that's... A, that's Means Ohio's doing a good job. Ohio's doing a good job, a pretty good job. <laughs> you know, I, some... I judge states on their laws. Like, oh, they suck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them do. A lot of them do. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's. I think it's going to be a big deal. Is you know, there's still what 16 states that don't have any medical cannabis laws, and so as these start coming on, it's going to be really important for activists like us to speak to the legislature there to say, Hey, you know, these are the States that are doing this really well. Let's model what your new state laws are after these States that actually have it down and not mm-hmm. some of the, the crappier States that are doing it. So yeah. <laughs> judging, judging States. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be like Georgia. Yeah. Well, you know, I, we need to have an index like, yeah. uh, like the, this, Colleges, you know, the best colleges in the country every year. You know, we need to have the states judged on a few dozen different credentials of what is the best state and why. So that all the states like you don't want to be number 37. <laughs> Nobody wants to be number 37. And that's actually 30... brilliant. Yeah. You know, that's so, you know, brilliant. How yeah, do we, we measure that? Let's do it. Like that these are things that need to start happening in the industry that they can only help, I think. I would want to judge cities too. Cause I can go down a list of cities and be like, Oh, they are great. And they suck. <laughs> yeah, sure. With the yeah. same parameters, you know, I mean, cause there's cities that are amazing to work with and cities that are just like, Oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yes, exactly. All right. So let's, okay. So we're state city. Now let's go with individual dispensaries. I'm really curious about this consumer experience. And so like, you know, I was in California in the early 2000s and got to see just the burgeoning of that industry. And you go into a dispensary there and it was like, uh, most of them were, yeah, it it was, there was nothing cool. It was like a hippie mom and pop shop or it was like, you know, graffiti up on the walls, a hip hop kind of trap shop. Yeah. And, um, Harborside was one of the first ones to really kind of bring a more medical feeling to it, offering massages and clean white atmosphere and and really pristine in there and glass cases and blah, 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 blah. And then obviously MedMen came around like, we're going to make it like an Apple store. And so, and a lot of places have sort of taken that on, but none of that really makes it comfortable for an elderly citizen to go and get their medicine. What kind of things 
do you think need to be instituted to make sure that it's cool to bring grandma to the dispensary? You know, I think it's, it's the design and culture of your people, right? Like it's, you know, I can't stand when I walk into a dispensary and the reception like barely acknowledges me, right? Like, it, you know, it's, and that's a, that's a, a an employee behavior, right? It, it, it's a, something that you can teach and you can design, right? And I think that for some of the operators, they're getting potentially a little complacent, right? Not all of them. New ones are not. I feel like when you first open, right, like you're really embracing the customer experience. You're really, you know, making sure that reception's doing all that they're supposed to do. Um, my argument is that in the beginning of a retailer's experience, they have accidental success, right? Because if you're the first one to market as a legal dispensary, people are just, you know, you can have as many customers as you want. You get complacent. Well, how do you make grandma feel comfortable? Well, you have to think of it from the beginning of her experience to the end of the experience, right? If, um, and I'm a woman, right? I can't stand walking into the dispensaries with half naked girls still, right? Like that's like a thing. Like I can, I can think of two dispensaries I've been to recently in California where it's the, you know, the shirt clipped all the way down and the little, the little tiny shorts. I get that that's appealing to like the 20 and 30 year olds. Um, I'm a woman in my forties. I don't want to buy weed from a girl that's half naked. Um, right. Like, and, and you think of somebody that's elderly, that's coming potentially in from a place that it's the devil's harvest, right. They walk into a place and the receptionist isn't friendly. If the vibe is overly loud music, right. I agree with music, right. But does it, you know, like it should be over, you know, it should be at a, you know, I, I guess I've never been somewhere where it's too much, but it has to be music. That's comfortable. They've got to be welcomed and then it's got to be set up for your bud tender to identify the the user type, right? Is this your first time here? Is this your first time to a dispensary, right? And I think there's places that really have that scripted in a way to do well, but it's not across the board, right? And so it's my book is really my reminder that you can't forget that you have to stay on your customer experience for the life of your business because in the beginning you're first to market and people just came in. Well, now there's five other guys in town. How do you tap into this population that's our biggest growing segment to make sure that when they walk in, they're comfortable buying weed? Um, and it's with how the, the culture of the store, the design of the store, it's the attitude of the bud tenders, it's how the bud tenders dress, it's how they interact and their product knowledge. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's all of that. And uh, in the the cake house where, where yeah. you're working, have you been able to install all these different ideas? And like, What kind of culture have you seen work best with the organization that you're with? So I love our brand and I hope that everybody does too. Our brand was meant to be fun, very specifically. We're not medical. We're not hip hop. We're not, it's, it's purely meant to be fun because everybody loves cake, <laughs> right? Everybody loves cake. 
And um, in our our founder is who came up with the concept of the cake house, which is TCH, which if you look at the initials inverted, it's THC, right? Um, and the idea, and we do, we did create a customer experience model. We have a model out there, and it's really to engage a customer so that anybody feels welcome. Um, it a warm greeting is expected when they walk in. We have uniforms. Um, all of our our bud tenders actually wear a apron, and it's the idea that it's service. But then you would also wear an apron if you are um, at a bakery, right? Right. 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 And so, you know, the, it's really the idea that we're, we're trying to embrace and almost pay homage to old cannabis culture too, because it's fun, big, bright colors. If you walk in our stores, like we have this big mural on top of the ceiling. So we're not trying to like be so sterile as some of the medical places. We're really, it's let's have fun with it because we're selling legal weed, right? Like, you know. (laughs) <laughs> like grandma come on in it's a bakery you know yeah. and that's really what we're trying to to go for is you know you don't have to be boring and inclusive right like you can have fun with that and that's our goal and i f- i feel like based on our reviews based on our feedback in the market i feel like our brand's been very well received um you know we have complaints that we obviously have to work through with operations that you know, occasionally somebody's like, oh, I got a bad cart. I got this. But for the most part, you know, cake for people shopping with us, it's become a verb, you know, working with us. It's like, oh, it's the cake over. Um, you know, we're making cake happen. Um, you know, bring me all that cake. Like it's, it's, and it's fun, but I feel like the funness of it cascades in our culture to make our bud tenders and our managers happy so that they feel comfortable embracing anybody in the organization. Oh, sure. That's great. And, you know, something for the cake house as well is that they have a woman in a position of power. There's less than 10% of C-level positions in a company are, are women. Um, I'm not the only female in a position of power. Um, and we also have, you know, some of our, our founders are Hispanic. And so I think inherently we're diverse. And the consequence of that is like something beautiful that happens that it's like, it's, if you embrace diversity naturally, you embrace diversity naturally, and that can be felt in your organization. And I feel like if you walk in our stores, you are going to find the diversity that you find on the leadership team, because we don't, I would say we just don't play into any biases. We probably have some sort of bias that I don't know about, but like, I'm really proud that when you walk into one of my stores, it, you're going to find men, women, all sorts of ethnicities, and you're going to find really happy bug tenders. And to me, that's what our customer experience comes down to. Yeah. And social equity, it's a hot button term right now. And so maybe if people aren't too familiar with it, you could explain social equity a little bit and maybe your thoughts on it and how, I mean, you already touched on how the cake house is doing it, but how you also consult other organizations to do it. So social equity is such a, a, a interesting concept, right? It's the buzzword in the industry right now. How do we achieve social equity? If somebody doesn't know why we need social equity, it's, well, we spent a hundred years putting people of color in jail for what 
white people are making millions on now. Right. Like that's like the most generic way to describe it is that for a hundred years, people of color have been targeted for what people are making money on now. Um, Anyone. And so the idea of social equity is that the people that were harmed by the war on drugs should get a first chance at running these businesses. We've seen programs throughout the country. I feel like Oakland and Sacramento are model programs. They did a really phenomenal job in terms of, you know, taking those impacted by the war on drugs and uplifting them. Um, in my book, I actually do a piece on Betty Mitchell, who's uh, a graduate from the Sacramento Corps program. She's just this awesome chick. Her uh, great grand or her, her great uncle um, found a way to uh, water emulsify cannabis oil in the 60s and would pass it or take it around um, and pass it out to homeless people for pain management in the 60s. So it's a, it's a great, great story on Betty, but, um, so this is trended across the country to try to give people of that been impacted by the war on drugs, um, a chance at, um, social equity licenses. Right. And so you have states like Illinois that rolled it out and now it's all caught in litigation. You have, you know, New Jersey offering preferences. You have New York, offering preferences with promises of having these amazing social equity programs. Um, I think the heart of these programs, the spirit of them are well-intentioned. The implementation of them, as we see in Illinois, ended up fundamentally flawed in a way that can be tremendously gamed. Um, And so. In what way? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So what they did in Illinois is they offered 75 social equity licenses, but then what they did is they put it on a points scoring system with this crazy long application that was very expensive to prepare. The way that it ended up working is that you had to be a vet, a veteran, and a social equity qualified to win. So it only ended up with like 14 or 15 organizations for the first 75 round of licenses, because what they did is the wealthy gamers came in and said, oh, I'm going to put in 20 apps so that I can make it in the lottery. Oh, I'm going to put in 15 apps. Well, you know, that inherently made it a game. They came back and then you had to have a perfect score to even make it in the lottery. So there was all these rounds of revisions to get this perfect score. And they tried to offer additional licenses to make up for these, these organizations that gamed and did very well and made it in the first lottery. And I want to say last summer, they passed out all these additional licenses. Well, people are still unhappy with how that played out. And so now it's caught up in litigation and now nobody has license. So because it's caught in litigation, nobody has license and the existing operators are seeing windfall profits because nobody else, there's no other games in town. They're all being allowed to essentially monopolize the market until this is figured out. And so the spirit was there, right? The spirit of the law was like, let's give people this opportunity to create generational wealth for their family. And, you know, basically because of the limits and how they set it up, it was poorly executed due to the poor execution. 
and what was implemented. Now it's all caught up in litigation. Nobody has a license and the original applicants are only getting richer. Oh, and good for them, right? Like I'm, I never shun somebody on getting richer. Like, you know, they went years with no profit. So I like, you know, they, they paid their price, but it, it's also unfair. Like, you know, had you done it better, other people could, you know, the spirit of the law, the spirit of the social equity piece, people could be opening their business. Um, and then the other problem I have with social equity is not everybody's meant to run a business either. Right. So like, that's not the only way you should offer social equity is through 75 licenses, right? That means you're only helping 75 people potentially, you know, how, how do you make the biggest umbrella possible? Because it was millions of people put in jail and prison for cannabis crimes, you know? So how are you actually doing good by only helping 75 potential people where it got gamed and nobody's winning? Absolutely. So that's that's my example. Yeah, thank you. That's a good example. And it seems like there's a lot of opportunity, like you're saying, for not just business owners, but to impact entire communities. There are countless communities around the country in states that have cannabis laws that you could go into that are traditionally people of color and go in there with education programs and mm-hmm. Teach them everything about the manufacturing side. Teach them everything about the cultivation side and then the customer service side. And you can uplift an entire community with cannabis by incorporating as many people as possible from whatever it is, like 16 and up. I guess you probably have to be 18 to work in a a cannabis company. 21? You can't even be 18? It depends on the state, but 21 is like okay, it's yeah. the general rule. Oh, yeah. you, you can still go die for this country, but you can't work in a cannabis store. Crazy. Okay, anyway, you can't water a plant. You can't water a plant? <laughs> really? can't water a plant. You can't water a plant? Okay. So anyway, so yeah, I, I think that there's so much opportunity, like you're saying, that it's not just for license holders. Like We should really have it all the way up and down the entire employment chain within the cannabis industry. There's so many jobs available, so much opportunity. And that's kind of, you know, when you put the license caps out there in a state, like I love California because, because California people are so, um, in, uh, ingenious, I guess, on how they can be like, all right, whatever. If half the communities hate us, I'm going to find a place to go to business anyway. Right. There's, there's no license cap right so you walk in a dispensary in california and it's the mecca i mean like you have everything it's like oh my god there's you know gummies and cookies and carts and sherbet and and you know beverages like you you name it i believe that that's at the because there's no license caps right so okay i can you know there's vape cartridges markets flooded i'm gonna go create drinks right like competition creates ingenuity and in a state like Illinois, where there's license caps, I want to say that they awarded 40 craft grow licenses. Well, that's only 40 people in business. Like, why are you even putting a cap on it at all? Because you can see, like, it's bad for business to have a license cap on it. Like, you know, why don't you just let it be whoever can have a license so that you can create those jobs? Because it's not just the jobs you create. When you go to open a facility, you hire local contractors, 
you hire local people to get stuff done. So you're supporting the local businesses there. So why would you even consider putting a cap on these things when it's fundamentally a way to stimulate the economy in a time that we desperately need it? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially the licenses around cultivation and manufacturing. It's like what, capitalism, the, the, the better you are at marketing and creating a great product that people want, the better off you're going to be and give people choices. Why not? Mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, I am going to wrap this up. Is there anything that you would like to, so I like to ask the last question, right? One change that you would like to see within the cannabis industry, if you could just pick one thing, what would that one thing be? That's tough. Um, But I'm going to go big on that. I'm going to say that I want uh, no license caps and equal accessibility across every state. And that's a complete fantasy but like, like it, to me, the best thing we could ever do for the industry would be to have no license caps and equal accessibility. Good one. Good one. What about you? I like that. Me? I, yeah. uh, I would like to see it rescheduled. I think, I think cannabis needs to be rescheduled. So there's medical access for everybody in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mine. We're on the same page then. Yeah. Yeah. I sure. mean, different, you know, different methods, but you know. Yeah. In a different <laughs> direction. Well, Charlita, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I will put all the links into the show notes and where can people find your book? So um, thank you so much for asking. And I, it's been a blast chatting with you today. I mean, you know, like I, I love what you got going on and I appreciate you having me um, my book is uh, on Amazon or anywhere you uh, would find, you know, a book for sale, Barnes and Noble. Um, I just published the audio version May 4th. So um, that is available on Audible um, and basically anywhere that you would listen to an ebook. So, um, you know, I appreciate anybody who, uh, if you have the opportunity to listen to it or pick up a copy, please, please, please send me a message because I would love to hear from you. Um, so, you know, I want to talk to people who actually read the book. How did it make you feel? Do you agree? Tell me if you disagree, pick a fight with me, you know, like reach out. I I would love to hear from you. Um, breaking the stigma available on Amazon. Great. Love it. Fighter. You heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me Uh, I'm wrong. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you again, Charlita, for your time. I very much appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Matthew, for having me. I appreciate it.